0: Unlocking True Happiness
1: with Venerable Tenzin Choki.
0: Welcome to Unlocking True Happiness. I'm Venerable Tenzin Choki, a monastic practicing in the Tibetan tradition. Each episode of Unlocking True Happiness will explore the Buddhist teachings as they're applied in our daily lives to deepen our experience of genuine well-being. Topics combine ideas from Buddhism with those from the fields of positive psychology, Western philosophy, and current events. I'm excited about the topic for today, which is the link between awe and altruism. And you may not have known that there was such a thing, but we'll dive into it. And I was prompted to think about this a couple of weeks ago. We had a session on core values. Some of you were there. We did an exercise where we explored our core values and then looked at how that motivates our life and in the context of that as we were looking at these kind of very common core values i shared an experience i had a couple of years ago Um, for many years i taught an annual interfaith retreat for many years with my friend, Rabbi Diane Elliott, Jewish rabbi and pastor Steve Harms, a Lutheran pastor. And sometimes we would also have a Muslim faith leader represent. And I remember one year we did this interesting exercise. We were kind of looking at common, maybe common values between the different faith traditions. Like we were definitely looking at differences, but we were looking at commonalities too. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama always says, You know, sometimes in terms of the different religions view of what's ultimate, there are definite differences, but in terms of ethics and values, there's a lot of commonality. And so what we did, this was back when we could do things in person, we put a bunch of flip chart pages up around the room, kind of blue tacked to the walls and windows. And we had a bunch of markers and we had everybody just write down kind of a brainstorm of what they thought were the values of their religious tradition. We had a wide range of people there, or, you know, just what they thought were spiritual or religious values. And then we gave everybody three votes. And they could vote for, put all of their three votes on one, we had them put check marks. If they really thought one, like compassion was the ultimate, they could put their three votes next to compassion or they could mix it up, but they only had three. And it was super interesting. I mean, very, very clear. Almost everything got at least one check mark because somebody had written it up. So they thought it was important. But the things that ranked like far and away, the highest were kindness, wisdom, And then a sense of awe or wonder. And that was super interesting to me that that made the list. The kindness and wisdom. And those of you who are familiar with Buddhist teachings, you might be like, duh, of course, kindness and wisdom are going to rank high. But awe and wonder really came up. And so it got me thinking about the emotion or the value or the quality of awe or wonder. And then I had an opportunity oh and also at that point the Jewish faith leader and these were always in August we'd always have these retreats in the middle of August so it was right before the Jewish holidays and the Jewish faith leader shared something and she said there's a time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur called the Days of Awe and it's this whole period where she said the gates of heaven are open And then your job is to pray and offer and receive forgiveness. So this will circle back to this, this idea that awe and forgiveness, some sort of interconnection happens. So this whole period called the Days of Awe, I thought that was interesting. And so it got me thinking about how awe and wonder kind of fit into Buddhist practice, because traditionally... Historically, and we'll look at this in a second, awe, you know, throughout most of human history, the emotions of awe and wonder were sort of restricted to a relationship with a divine being, right? And so for example, in the Hebrew Bible, there are all these things where you know, they were struck with awe in the sight of God. And it also had a connotation of fear, and that was true for a lot of human history, this sort of awe or wonder in the face of God. And so I got to thinking about awe and wonder in terms of Buddhism, because we don't have the idea of a supreme being in the same way. Then the next year, I had an opportunity to go to a day long conference called the Art and Science of Awe. I mean, it was just amazing not to be cheesy, but awesome, like completely amazing, And it was held by the Greater Good Science Center, which I refer to a lot in our classes. And one of the main researchers there, Dr. Keltner, has devoted a lot of his research to the emotion of awe, and what is the function and the science of the emotion of awe. And so a lot of what I wanna present today comes from that conference and from that research, very specific kind of investigation into this emotion of awe. Uh, you know, when I was kind of thinking about how it fits into Buddhism, I was reminded too of a time, I was teaching in New Zealand at a little center, a little retreat center in the North Island of New Zealand. And I walked in on a discussion between two of the students there and they were talking about how, you know, they loved Buddhism, they love Buddhist practice, but they missed God like they said, we love being Buddhist, but we kind of miss God. And we got into this whole discussion. And it felt like what they were really saying was we miss this feeling of kind of the transcendent and something that sort of takes us out of this sort of limited view. So all of this prompted me to do this investigation about the emotion of awe and I want to share some of the findings with you some of the some of the very interesting research about it some of the ways that our thinking about awe has shifted you know culturally I mean mostly in the west that's that's what was looked at more in this conference was sort of a western philosophical idea And a Western religious idea, there are cultural differences. And I'll talk about that in a minute, too. But kind of what is awe? What elicits awe? What's the function of it? Because we say all of these universal human emotions and awe is a universal have some sort of a function, right? They wouldn't have evolved in us. They wouldn't have stayed with us if they didn't have a function. So what's the function of awe? We'll look at some of the research, and then we'll look at some ways that we can introduce more awe, more experiences of awe into our lives. Dr. Keltner says our culture, meaning sort of mainstream North American culture, he says is awe deprived. So how can we introduce more experiences of awe into our lives? So all of that in the next hour and 15 minutes. Oh, my goodness. Okay, I better hurry up. All right. So awe, a couple of interesting quotes. Albert Einstein talked about awe, and he said, the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer pause to wonder, and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead, his eyes are closed." Pretty strong statement by Albert Einstein, right? And Abraham Maslow, the famous psychologist, and a lot of us are familiar, I think with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and then these peak experiences that he talks about. And he he described peak experiences as, Especially joyous and exciting moments in life involving sudden feelings of intense happiness and well being, wonder and awe, and possibly also involving an awareness of transcendental unity or knowledge of higher truth, as though perceiving the world from an altered and often vastly profound and awe inspiring perspective. So awe kind of enters into Abraham Maslow's definition of these peak experiences, which are right at the top of the pyramid of human needs. So it's seen as something we need, you know, the more fundamental needs, obviously, food, shelter, clothing and so forth. But how these experiences, these peak experiences are included as a basic human need. So we say that awe is defined as The feeling of being in the presence of something vast and greater than the self that exceeds current knowledge structures, meaning you need to adjust your understanding of the world and your place in it in order to make sense of an awe-inspiring event, feat, or behavior. So there's this idea of vastness, this idea of something greater than the self, This idea that your current knowledge structures are kind of expanded by this. You need to adjust your understanding to make sense of it. So sometimes I think of the, you know, just the ordinary human or English, you know, I don't know if it's slang or an idiom or something when we say, oh, my mind was blown, right? Like, oh, that was mind blowing. That might be kind of synonymous. So your current knowledge structures need to be kind of blown apart, your understanding needs to be adjusted. So that's one definition of awe. And in human history, as I mentioned, in human history, we say that awe originally was reserved for a relationship or a feeling towards a divine being. And then there was an Irish philosopher called Edmund Burke. And then in 1757, our understanding of awe kind of expanded. And he wrote about awe as an emotion of expanded thought and greatness of mind produced not just by religious ritual or in communion with God, but by a variety of different perceptual experiences. So he talked about awe being produced by literature, by art by poetry, nature, right? Even acoustic experiences like listening to a symphony or some kind of kind of music. So many different elicitors of awe. And as the definition says, the central features of awe are this perceived vastness. So something overwhelms us and makes us feel small and this will relate to the altruism link which i'll talk about in a second and so anything that we experience that's much larger than the self or the self's typical frame of reference so they're different elicitors of awe but it's basically something vast and so this vastness becomes awe-inspiring When it requires accommodation, so that means that our experiences aren't easily assimilated into our existing mental structures. We have to accommodate the experience by changing our mental structures, the process by which we update and change our core beliefs. And so you can think of, you know, these experiences of awe, whether it's something to do with nature, whether it's something to do with the behavior of another person right? Because other people can be awe-inspiring for us. Their behavior can go beyond what our limiting sense of maybe what is possible for us in our limiting structure, like people who do these acts of heroism. There's a, a research called Phil Zimbardo, and he, he researches heroism just ordinary people doing these things that are sort of unimaginable, right? That are so expansive that they expand our structures of what we think is possible. So awe centers upon the recognition of the limitations of the self and makes people forget themselves and their petty concerns. So it opens us up to new possibilities, new values, new directions in life. And it links to what psychologists call the hive switch, this collective experience, along with collective love and collective joy. It makes you feel like you're part of a whole, right? And so we'll look at some of these elicitors of awe, and you can think about, you know, I always think in terms of evolutionary psychology, you know, in terms of our evolution, how most of these kinds of experiences were shared with others, right? And then it was faster than us, we were sharing the experience with others and it made us feel more connected. So let's look at some of the elicitors of awe. So social elicitors, like a powerful leader, an encounter with God, great skill or great virtue. So I think of this, you know, a powerful leader or somebody with great virtue and great skill, I think of one time I was in Denver visiting a friend and someone called him in the afternoon and offered him a ticket to go see Bishop Desmond Tutu speak at some auditorium in downtown Denver. And he very kindly, because I was his guest, offered his ticket to me. And I was like, no, no, are you sure? Are you sure? So I ended up going to see Bishop Desmond Tutu, somebody of a powerful leader with great virtue. And it was Amazing. It was awesome. The experience, just the energy, the virtue. It was so palpable just being in the presence of someone like that. So you can really imagine, you know, these people, great skill. We just had the Olympics that just finished. I can't even imagine. I mean, I could barely run to save my life. It's like I watch these things, and it's just completely mind blowing what some of these human beings can do, right? Physical elicitors, a grand vista, weather events, grand buildings, music, right? So physical, both both visual, auditory, right? These kind of elicitors of awe. Why does everybody go to the Grand Canyon? To have that feeling. You're standing there at the edge of the Grand Canyon. And no matter how many times I've gone, I've gone a, you know, a handful of times in my life, always completely awe-inspiring. Weather events, I was thinking about this. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily considered weather, but I remember the one time I saw the Northern Lights, which weirdly was in Southern Arizona. It was a year there was a lot of sunspot activity and you could see them much farther South. So I didn't even recognize that that was what it was when it started happening. I was just standing there with my mouth hanging open. A friend of mine just went camping last week To see the Pleiades meteor shower overnight last Thursday night or Wednesday night or wherever it was the peak and was telling me about her experience of just lying there and seeing this meteor shower. And then there can be cognitive elicitors, these great theories and epiphanies. And I think in Buddhism, you know, they say, for example, the the Buddhist idea of emptiness. And they say, when you get a realization of emptiness, all the hairs on your body stand on end, there are all these descriptions that sound like awe inspiring descriptions, even I think you know I've noticed in people in compassion classes, people who've had these experiences of compassion that can really kind of blow open your limiting view of what's possible. You know, I think the theory of relativity, if we really understand that, that can be something, again, just completely reconfigures our ways of thinking. So it's interesting. The main elicitor isn't nature, but other people. And then the second most common way is through nature. So these are some of the common elicitors. And then in terms of the function of awe, I'm going to stop sharing for a minute. In You know, in the long evolutionary view, the function of awe is to help us bind to social collectives and enables us to act in more collaborative ways, right? So awe results in a sudden reduction of attention to the personal self and the personal self's goals and connects us to others. Because for groups to work well, especially in our evolutionary history, we had to subordinate self-interest in the service of the collective. And so all evolved to kind of meet this demand of human sociality. It gives a sense of physical power and connection to the group, a unifying common purpose, a fading of the awareness of the boundaries between self and others. And when we're kind of awash in this experience of awe, we feel smaller. We feel a sense of restraint and a sense of commonality and unity with other group experiences. And so um, Dr. Keltner talks about the three big moral sentiments, which he identifies as compassion, gratitude, and awe. And he says, we're not necessarily seeing that, feeling these things when all of our own needs are met and we can feel kind of like, oh, I'm doing really well and focus on ourselves. He says, compassion, gratitude, and awe are necessarily these three um, moral emotions that really connect us to others and really um, foster that sense of group cohesion. And so that's one of the functions of awe is to get that sense of group cohesion. And the researchers I wanted to present some of the studies that have been done because I found this so interesting. Some of the studies that have been done to see if this is true. For example, there was a study and it was on the UC Berkeley campus. And apparently and I've seen it, but apparently this is a grove of eucalyptus trees and it's one of the one of the tallest and largest eucalyptus grows it's not crime kind of from Santa Cruz I'm like okay it's not the redwood old growth redwoods but it's pretty amazing right so standing in this grove so they had a bunch of the students a bunch of the study uh subjects stand facing the eucalyptus grove for like a minute or two not long not like staring there having a whole meditation but just standing facing the grove of eucalyptus And then the way they do these studies, they always have the researcher come by and pretend to drop the box of pens on the ground. So, and how many pens does the researcher, you know, the subject pick up is like some sort of a test of altruism. So they found that the test subjects facing this eucalyptus grove, picked up so many more pens, like help the researcher who'd faked dropping the pen so much more than the people faced, just 180 degrees, just facing the science building, right? Just some building, some standard building. So that was one test. And that's been replicated many times. They did another one where they went into a museum on the UC Berkeley campus, and they had the person standing in front of like the skeleton of a T-Rex versus just looking down the hallway, right? So the skeleton of this dinosaur versus looking down the hallway. And again, in, you know, the play in the in the presence of these awe inspiring things, the person showed more connection and more altruistic behavior. There was another um, another study they did. They took somebody to Fisherman's Wharf, just this tourist place in Monterey. And then they took someone to Yosemite, to this like amazing vista. And then they had them draw a self-portrait of them in that space. When they drew themselves at Fisherman's Wharf, they were really big, took up most of the paper. And then the wharf and the boats were like tiny in the background. When they were at Yosemite, all the mountains were huge and they were just this tiny little figure in the front. So their idea of themselves just shrunk in relation to what was in front of them. Another study, they, there was a study They asked 1,500 people, and this is just in the United States, so it'd be interesting to compare across cultures. They asked a series of questions to assess how much awe they experienced on a regular basis. And then they found the people who experienced more awe in their lives, who felt more regular, like wonder and beauty in the world around them, were more generous to a stranger, sharing more lottery tickets with a stranger. They gave 40% more of their tickets away than people who were awe deprived. So I love that study. I think that's really interesting. And one of the researchers called Paul Piff says, our investigation indicates that awe, although often fleeting and hard to describe, serves a vital social function. By diminishing the emphasis on the individual self, awe may encourage people to forego strict self-interest to improve the welfare of others. When experiencing awe, you may not, egocentrically speaking, feel like you're at the center of the world anymore. By shifting attention towards larger entities and diminishing the emphasis on the individual self, We reasoned that awe would trigger tendencies to engage in pro-social behaviors. Across all these different elicitors of awe, we found the same sorts of effects. People felt smaller, less self-important, and behaved in a more pro-social fashion. Might awe cause people to become more invested in the greater good, giving more to charity, volunteering to help others, or doing more to lessen their impact on the environment? Our research would suggest the answer is yes. And in an essay called, Awe in the Experience of Self-Transcendence, two professors of psychology, Jesse Graham and Sarah Estes, and a poet called Sarah Estes, put it this way. They said, awe is part of a set of self-transcendent emotions, along with compassion, admiration, elevation, and gratitude. Awe may thus be an adaptive part of our fundamentally social nature. Our capacity for awe and wonder lets us lose ourselves for a time in something larger, whether that something be nature, the collective or the divine. Okay, so this is the link between awe and altruism, which I find so interesting, this kind of link between feelings of awe and expressions of altruism there's another big advantage to awe and that is it makes us more creative when we experience wonder it stimulates our creativity and there's some experiments that have been done about that too you know even just watching short videos about expansive images of earth Allowed people to come up with more original examples when they were given a category like furniture and asked to name a list of words. They were able to do better. So we think more creatively when we're experiencing these, you know, elicitors of awe. So, Our culture, Dr. Keltner posits that our culture is becoming awe deprived, he said, you know, we spend more time working and commuting less time outdoors and with other people less time noticing the wonders and the beauty of the natural world or witnessing acts of kindness. Attendance at art events, and this is even way before the pandemic, it's gotten even worse in the last year and a half because we haven't been able to for the most part, right? So attendance at art events, live music, theater, museums, galleries has dropped in recent years. Arts and music programs in schools have been cut and curtailed, time spent outdoors and unstructured exploration is being sacrificed for resume building activities, right? And there's a narcissism epidemic. Our culture becoming more individualistic, more narcissistic, more materialistic, more entitled, more disconnected. So when we think about all leading to altruism, if we'd like to be more connected to others, more kind, more compassionate, to think of others more, it would make sense to foster more experiences of awe. So if we want the result of connection, if we want the result of kindness, compassion, and thinking of others, and not being so focused on our own you know, needs as much to the detriment of others, if we want to reduce our experiences of narcissism, we can foster more experiences of awe. And Dr. Keltner shares some suggestions for that that I want to share with you from the research. So write about a personal experience of awe. So when we've had one of these experiences, to journal about it. This helps deepen that imprint of that experience of awe. So if we write about it afterwards, that really helps. We can take an awe walk. Right? Because being in nature is one of the elicitors of awe. And hopefully, we're in a place where we can see nature, or if we're in a city, see beautiful architecture, some amazing buildings, some beautiful park. Watch an awe-inducing video, and even just these short videos. And there's so many of these now on YouTube of like drones flying over the Grand Canyon or something, or somebody like jumping off with a with a GoPro thing on their head, like you know parasailing or something. Like I find these. There's many, many of these awe-inspiring videos. Read an awe-inspiring story, and I think memoirs about travel and adventure can really be some of these. So what will help us elicit more experiences of awe? We're gonna look at that in a moment in a practice by kind of going back and thinking about some things in our own lives that have been elicitors of awe for us. And then just putting energy into some of these things that might make us feel experiences of awe. And the result will be our sense of connection with others will really be increased. So prompt you to thinking about some experiences of awe that you've had, and then you'll investigate what elicited that experience for you. And then also look at what behavior might've been the kind of result of that experience of awe. Did it make you feel more connected? So I'll guide you through, and what I'll do in this meditation is just prompt you with things to think about, pause, So think from your own experience, you know, just reflecting from your own experience to try and get some insight on the function of awe in your own life. Okay, so let's get in our meditation posture with our back straight, your shoulders even, your head tilted slightly forward, and just settle with the breath for a few moments after... Getting in that relaxed posture. And just turning your attention to the breath to get yourself here in your body in the present moment. And so taking a moment to reflect on some times in your life that you've experienced awe and wonder. So just drawing from your memory, some of the times that you've experienced awe and wonder. And there may be some moments that really stand out, kind of life out of your life, like real moments that stand out. So just thinking, drawing from your memory, there also might be some recent moments so you can draw from kind of the big moments in your whole life and maybe some things that you experienced recently. And as some of these memories come to mind, take a moment to just think of what elicited this experience. Was it something that happened in nature or
1: something that involved other people? Maybe the
0: qualities of other people or an action that someone else did or just being in the presence of someone that you really admire.
1: Or maybe it was an experience with music or art, even architecture.
0: Or maybe it was some kind of grand theory or epiphany. So just think, what was the elicitor of these experiences of awe?
1: when you think about this
0: experience, do you remember if you felt more connected to others as a result of this experience? Do you remember subjectively if you might have felt more connection to others?
1: Did that experience motivate you into any action? And now think, do you
0: feel that your life is deprived of experiences of awe? Like Dr. Keltner says, sometimes we have an awe deficit these days. Do you feel that that might be true for your life, that you might be deprived of experiences of awe?
1: And what steps might you be able to take to introduce more awe into your life?
0: And if it feels appropriate, you might make a commitment to yourself to try to seek out more experiences
1: of awe in the service of greater altruism and connection in your life. And to
0: conclude, I'd love to read a quote by Helena Von Fleet. She says, so let's challenge ourselves to expand beyond the mundane, to flourish beyond the merely efficient, beyond the merely rational, beyond the merely explicit, not into the flamboyant or the frivolous, but into the realm of the mysterious, the realm of the sublime into the ambiguous and above all into the beautiful let's give ourselves permission to be in awe <laughs> Thanks for listening. Learn more about this episode and browse our episode library by visiting unlocking You can also subscribe on Apple podcasts. Unlocking True Happiness is produced by Matthew DeVaras, Intro by Russell Taylor. And our theme music is Nightingale by Asari. Stay safe out there. See you next time.